Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose land we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Yambri peoples, past and present. All right, let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from an actual studio, from CPAS. So thank you so much, CPAS. I'm your familiar stranger today, Alex, together with fellow familiar strangers, Maddie. Mumta. Hi. And Andy. Hello. Now, before we dive into today's discussion, have you ever wanted to be part of the team at TFS? We're currently looking for new members. If you have an interest in public anthropology and are keen to make the strangeness of our discipline familiar to more people, please get in touch. We'd be particularly excited to hear from graduate students and recent grads, but honestly, if you're just generally into anthro and you're a bit of an anthro nerd, don't hesitate to shoot us an email. Write for the blog, join our panels, and you know what? We'll even teach you how to record and edit podcasts. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, get in touch at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com. Also, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on The Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight onto today's episode. All right, so we're having a very special episode today, a special first year episode, because we have a new intake of first-year anthropologists who are actually on campus, which is a little wild for us. So we're going to be discussing what these guys are about, what they're hoping to research, what their plans are, and why on earth did they decide to do a PhD in anthropology? Right, so to kick us off, Mumta, we're calling you an honorary first year after your first year first year was in during COVID times. Would you like to talk to us, what are you hoping to research as part of your degree? Uh, so I actually spent the first 10 months of my first year in Singapore, and I've only just arrived in Canberra about two and a half months ago. So technically just stepped into my second year, but kind of still feel like a first year student. So thank you for that honorary uh, title. My work looks at women in my community, or rather the community of my childhood. So that would be the community of Sindhi merchants in Japan. And I'm specifically interested in understanding the nothing that women do in their own words. So women claim, women that I've spoken to rather in this particular generation of uh, Sindhi women in my community, when I've had like preliminary interviews with them a few years ago, this pattern of um, what do we do all day? We don't do, we don't do anything. We do nothing. This nothingness became a pattern and uh, what I at the time could only interpret as self-dismissal um, so I actually was quite frustrated with that outcome, thinking, oh, gosh, this is a dead end. If there's nothing to research, what am I going to do? And um, I had this pivotal consultation with a mentor back at the National University of Singapore. And she said, you're looking at this wrong. This is your starting point. Why do the women claim they do nothing? What is the nothing that they do? This is your entryway. This is your gateway into the whole project. So... That conversation was a game changer for me. And instead of looking at it bleakly and then sort of getting really frustrated, 
with the project. Um, that's that's basically where I am right now. And I'm hoping that Japan opens up later this year so that I can get into the field and get going. Andy, Maddie, what are you guys looking at? Now, you are much earlier in your PhD journey, I will admit. Yeah, well, I'm six days into my PhD journey <laughs> at, at this point. So Mumta's like a bit more progressed than, than we are, but um, I'm probably like the freshest one here. In my research, I'm hoping to do fieldwork in Central Australia, some Aboriginal communities there, somewhere I'd been living and working for the last five years before coming to ANU. I was working as an anthropologist for a organization called the Central Land Council there. And so I'm hoping to go back and spend time in these communities to look at how they make sense of white people or non-Aboriginal people living and working in Aboriginal communities uh, and use that as a bit of a window into like a critical perspective on a lot of discourses that uh, non-Aboriginal people bring to working in remote communities. So how Aboriginal people are making sense of uh, non-Aboriginal people and their motivations coming to those communities. And also as a bit of a window into the kind of theoretical, metaphysical frameworks that Aboriginal people think about people and difference through. And Maddie? Yeah, again, I'm quite early on in the in the journey. I'm looking at cultures of health and performance science and the body, and especially the kind of medical interaction in elite sport, specifically looking at women's sport. I'd really like to look at football if possible, but it all depends on kind of access to the field and who's willing to be involved in the research as well. So that's the general area that I'm looking in. The first, I think, big question is, what brought you guys to do a PhD in anthropology? It, it is a slightly obscure thing to do. For me, it's, it's like a kind of a combination of things. So one is just like I'm a real anthropology nerd. So anthropology is the kind of stuff that I like to think about any time of the day, my downtime, uh, if, even if it's not sort of specifically related to my um, sort of research interest. So there's that. And then, I don't know, just for some reason, it's, it's like it's kind of like a lifestyle choice, right? You know, some people, they decide oh, I want to learn how to like paint watercolors or like I want to learn how to speak Spanish or take up the guitar. Uh, for some reason, my brain just settled on wanting to do a PhD. I'd say I also am an anthropology nerd. I think I was lucky enough to be able to do some undergrad courses in anthropology and they just kind of fit. I couldn't quite settle into uni until I started, you know, being exposed to anthropological theories and methods. And, you know, it just, it just feels like it's the right way for me to be in the world. Even if I'm kind of not formally studying anthropology, it's the way that I think, it's the way that I like to approach problems and people um, and, you know, new situations. So it just felt right. All right, classic anthro question. When you say you would like to approach it in an anthro sort of way, what do you mean? I think for me, firstly, that is just understanding people's perspectives. I mean, that's such a, a basic answer, but, you know, I've spent the last few years in the public service and that almost is kind of deadening in a way where you're so removed from people and you kind of exist to perform a function rather than to be a person. And so when you're trying to problem solve there, you kind of have to unpick that function and get to the person behind it. It's just a kind of intentional empathy perhaps i think the wonderful thing about anthropology i wouldn't call myself an anthropological nerd or an anthropology nerd as such but i've just always loved school 
So just a general nerd. <laughs> just a general nerd. Just a general nerd. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That's good. I, that fits. I think for the longest time, it's, I've always held a very naive view about school and, and all that school encompasses. And I had some, to put it politely, some interesting experiences in the research industry post-masters, which was a good 12 years ago. That opened my eyes in a way where I was like, okay, I, I want to be in this for the right reasons, where I, I can answer the question of why do I want to do a PhD? I've always wanted to do a PhD because it was my comfort zone to be in school. And um, until I could answer that question, I wouldn't apply. And uh, the thing is, I already had the answer back then, but I just wasn't convinced by my own answer, which was that I want to. So for me, um, anthropology allows that sort of empathy. I think you nailed it with that word. It also allows a lot of introspection. Um, for me, my PhD project is an elaborate scheme in self-discovery. <laughs> I mean, this is basically another way to dig a tunnel back in, back to Japan, if I can. And, and so I am hoping to do that. I've got to ask, are you nervous, excited, probably both? What are your feelings about going back to this place of your childhood for your research? I mean, it's not like I haven't been back in between. No, no, I have. So um, uh, my PhD project actually, it sort of came together. That spark happened when I was doing my master's. 2008, I was in the field for master's and I was sort of fresh off the the bandwagon of, of submitting my honest thesis, I was completely mentally exhausted and saturated from that project. Couldn't think of a topic, went into consultation with a professor back my alma mater in Singapore. And he said, why are you looking on the outside? Look on the inside. What do you want to do? And it just came out of nowhere. I said, I want to go back to Japan. I haven't been back for seven years. You know, um, I would love to go back. And he said, then do that. Look at your community. You have a, you know, a privileged position of being at least a partial insider, as we say. Nobody's really researched on the Sindhi diaspora in Japan. This is a little known community that has a 150 year history in Japan. Japan has this completely misleading impression of being a homogenous society. Um, and it, that's not true. So that started this whole journey. Um, I documented the history of how Sindhi merchants, including my father, ended up in Japan. But it was a more all-male project because the merchants are all men. And when I was in the field and not interviewing the uncles, I was hanging out with the aunties. And that's when I realized, my God, why didn't I think about looking at these women? And I said, someday I'm going to come back and they're going to be the center of my project. And so 14 years later, they are. And so then... If you're getting a voyage of self-discovery mm. out of your PhD, what do you guys hope to get out of your PhD? The incredible employment prospects of being an anthropologist? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, yeah, what Mamtu was sort of saying is like it's an elaborate form of self-discovery uh, is probably the impetus for my research topic as well. I mean, you know, I'm a, for everyone can't see me, you know, you can only hear my voice, but I'm a white Australian. I'm not Indigenous. Grew up in a small town in um, rural Queensland uh, that ha was uh, had a large Indigenous population uh, and non-Indigenous population. And uh, growing up there, I guess, uh, you know, these kind of intercultural sort of politics and tensions were evident even as a kid uh, going through school. And so it's something I've always been interested in is intercultural politics and sort of racial tensions that exist and are very evident, I think, like very physically kind of like evident in rural towns across Australia. And so that sort of drew me into the work that I'd been doing uh, in native title and land rights 
recording and protecting sacred sites and land management, that sort of thing before the PhD. But this topic is kind of like, yeah, getting back to that, right? Like kind of critical perspective on that sort of politics. And, you know, like in a lot of ways, uh, my experience like growing up in that kind of environment is what I'm wanting to go back and, and sort of look at in a lot more depth uh, now through the PhD and how that shapes, you know, our kind of identities. And, and I think for a lot of, at least for me, you know, like that, that kind of critical perspective from Aboriginal people, uh, non-Aboriginal Australians is something that for my whole life I felt was like really missing in terms of my own sense of identity. So that's, that's kind of really what's driven me to wanting to do a PhD. But I mean, the, the fantastic career prospects at the end are also just like an added bonus, right? <laughs> Is it too early to be spreaking for jobs? I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's never too early, never trust too early. me. <laughs> that actually kind of reminds me of something that I mentioned to Andy a little bit earlier today. When I graduated from in anthropology honours here at ANU, I kind of felt like I was highly unemployable, you know, despite having done pretty well in my degree and, you know, really engaged with the content. I'd never been exposed to anthropologists who worked outside of academia through my studies. And, you know, I'm not lucky enough to have other anthropologists in my life other than, you, you know, the now. people <laughs> I am now, exactly. <laughs> but other than the people who, uh, like, you know, the academics that I'd met through my studies. And I felt that that was a, like a really big gap in my education I felt really unsure of what value I had derived from studying anthropology, you know, not necessarily on a personal level because it's something that I hold really close to myself, but maybe on a kind of more societal level. I mean, it would be really nice to say, like, screw the system, like, you shouldn't be looking for a job out of your degree or whatever, but that's not the reality. And I kind of, you know, struggled with what I was bringing to an employer and what I was bringing to, you know, my future career. And then when I actually finally got into the workplace, I found that all of the skills and, you know, ways of thinking that I had learned in anthropology were really valuable and really highly sought after. And they're kind of things that employers don't know how to advertise for either. What are these skills that you thought were really useful? I think, again, it's the intentional empathy, mm. like literally just being a nice person to be around. And I know the bar is nice. <laughs> highly low. It's really low, but... Um, yeah, no, that's really uh, underrated. It Come is on. really underrated. And yeah. I think like you know, in a workplace, okay, great. Like I was working in the public service, so you have to read stuff and, you know, summarize it and reanalyze it and put it in a brief for somebody. Like that's something anybody with any type of kind of degree can do. But when it comes to then how does that relate to bigger ideas and bigger questions and how do I help the people around me also be better at their jobs and be better how do I help them not enjoy, but like, how do I help move through this space in a way which makes the people around me feel better about themselves or feel seen and heard and acknowledged? I think that anthropology offers a lot of that. It's about the, you know, active listening and relating to other people in, in different ways. And it's kind of intangible again, and it's why people don't know how to sell their skills or how, why people don't know how to advertise for those things. But I do think that it is really valuable and, and taking a critical stance, but in like a approachable way as well, I think is part of it. 
are you guys hoping to put your anthropological degrees into clear work or join the academia train? I am not confined to academia as a career option. I've been quite clear about that in my head. Um, I think taking that 10-year gap helped to open up my eyes and to realize what else there could possibly be and also realize that I had one foot in academia the entire time that I was out of it, which means that I, I do recognize I'm inclined towards it. It doesn't necessarily mean that I might end up in it. I think, honestly, it may be a frustratingly vague response, but I'm I'm pretty much on par with Maddie. I want to help. I specifically want to give back to Japan in some way. I just feel like it's it's a place that gave my father his start. It gave my mother her start in, in some way. It gave birth to me. Um, so there's this, there has been this persisting desire to want to help marginalized minority groups in Japan who are, because they are not able to speak the language, uh, disadvantaged in a variety of ways. A lot of them face deportation in inhumane ways uh, because they overstay their visa and don't realize structurally how to go about navigating those those forms, those processes that would allow them to be legal um, residents of the country. Uh, but that's something that, that I keep in mind as a possibility. Yeah, so before coming to do a PhD, I'd actually been working as an anthropologist for about 12 years, uh, completely outside of universities. Most of my work has been with Aboriginal communities and things like native title, land rights, sacred site protection, as I'd sort of mentioned before. And so I'm hoping to go back and do that kind of work after I finish. Uh, I mean, you know, if, if someone rolled out the red carpet for me and invited me into the world of academia, uh, I, you know, I'd seriously consider that. But, you know, that's never going to happen. So um, I'm not, not particularly attracted to a, an academic career, but I'm hoping that these kind of skills Maddie was kind of touching on will help just kind of uh, expand the way that I think about the sort of work that I do and be able to engage in a more kind of like critical sort of way in that sort of work and, and go back to it doing what I was doing before I came here. What drew you guys to ANU specifically? So I grew up in Queanbeyan and then I, after multiple, multiple gap years, came to ANU, lived in Canberra, did my honours at ANU, worked in the public service in Canberra and here I am back at ANU so <laughs> it was a very easy decision for me and I just am so lucky that there's such a great anthropology program in my hometown. Actually I applied to eight schools and Australia was not on my I list at all. I got rejected Australia was not on my radar at all but I was also looking at the whole PhD application in a very warped way. I think a lot of us fall for this but I'm not going to speak for others you know, you sort of get taken in by the big names and the big school names and um, you want to somehow mold your topic to fit what they might have to offer. And I was doing that initially. And then I had this life-changing, con I have a lot of these life-changing conversations <laughs> with faculty from my alma mater in Singapore, some brilliant people there. And, you know, she said, look for the right person. Don't bother with the school name. Look for the, uh, someone whose work makes sense in alignment with your work. And that's when I realized, why did it not occur to me sooner? I had been introduced to the work of one of the professors based at ANU when I was a master's student because my writing reminded my supervisor of this particular person's writing. And so she introduced me to her work and um, I wrote to her and I said, will you supervise me? And she couldn't take on new students, but she recommended, who is my current supervisor, who's brilliant, 
And that's basically how ANU came about. So it was sort of a very uh, indirect way to get here, but uh, definitely no regrets at all. Uh, so I was drawn here like primarily because my supervisor has done similar research to what I'm interested in. But also, yeah, I just wanted like, you know, it's kind of lifestyle factors that kind of played into it as well. I didn't really want to study abroad in sort of current conditions. And I didn't want to go back to where I'd done my undergraduate degree at the University of Queensland. I wanted to do something a bit different and uh, different ideas, different people. And I really don't like big cities. I hate living in big cities. Uh, so ANU just seemed like a, a kind of like this uh, perfect fit. Well, for those of us who are lucky enough to be back in person, it is so good to be recording again, but that is unfortunately all we've got time for. I'd like to thank Andy. Thank you. Mumta. Thanks for having me, Alex. And Matt. Thank you. And I've been your host, Alex. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producer is the wonderful Matthew Fong. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash The Familiar Strange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog, or have anything to say to myself or the other hosts of this program, or if you're interested in joining us, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com. Tweet at TFS Tweets, or just look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening and until next time, keep talking strange.